Welcome to Melbourne Recital Centre's In Conversation series, a new series that fosters creative conversations about music, the music industry and beyond, recorded live in the salon and made possible by the Centre's Amplify program. In this conversation, we sit down with acclaimed artists Bela Fleck, Abigail Washburn and Sal Kimber. For those of you who don't know our host Sal Kimber, she has been quietly stealing hearts in Australia for the past seven years as a solo artist and with her band Sal Kimber and the Rollin' Wheel. Sal has recently hit number one in the AMRAP metro and regional charts, has been a guest on Rock Quiz and supported the likes of Casey Chambers and The Waifs. Sal will now start this creative conversation and introduce Bela Fleck and Abigail Washburn. Hi there. I actually have just come back down from uh, Mitagundi, which is like a pioneer farm and outdoor education centre in the Glen Valley. So I, I haven't actually seen electricity and lights for a couple of weeks, so uh, mind my eyes. <laughs> I think it's very super exciting. I guess most of you guys probably know uh, who Abigail and Bela are. Um, I probably don't even really need to introduce them, but maybe I'll do a little, little intro. Um, from bluegrass to classical and world beat to jazz. Bela and Abigail's performances display a musical diversity that is almost inconceivable. Fleck's riveting musicianship blends seamlessly with Washburn's enthralling composing, playing and voice to create a truly unique and stunning combination. Their 2014 debut album revealed musical possibilities found in their combined styles. Heralded by Washburn's angelic voice, the triumph of their collaboration was recognised when the record won the 2016 Grammy Award for Best Folk Album. I'm not going to talk much more. Welcome, Bela and Abigail. So um, we're thinking maybe we'll start the session with... Uh, a couple of songs. I'm not sure what they're going to play, but hi. This is we're very, very lucky. This is. I like amazing. that part about angelic voice. That Angel- was a really. <laughs> it was beautiful. <laughs> Ready, Fleck? I hope so. Thank you. 
I had a moment of um, looking at your fingers and then realising that it was you. <laughs> Going, oh, that, that's Baylor Fleck. Anyway, um, there are those fingers. Um, would it's you an like awesome responsibility having these fingers. <laughs> Especially this one. This is my f- special favourite finger. It's, the one it's that not works the one the, the folks at home think I'm, po- I'm pointing at. <laughs> um, I'm interested to know how many people in the audience play the banjo. Maybe put your hand up. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, there's quite a few. <laughs> and, um, and so obviously there's, you know, a few different influences going on here. Um, Baylor, you play the three-finger pick, mostly influenced by that. And then, um, Abby, you play more of the claw hammer, classic claw hammer. Can you 
do you think mostly influence? Can you show everybody sort of the banjo players and the non-banjo players mm. the difference between your styles? How many of you are um, Klyhammer players? <laughs> sort of five-ish, six-ish. Five -ish, six -ish. You've yeah. chosen the superior path, my friends. <laughs> <laughs> How many three-finger um, people? One, two, three. They're not really willing to admit it. I've seen. It. I saw <laughs> yeah, a few. There were, there were more hands. Yeah, there, there, are there some four-string players here? Ah, ah that's the thing. That's yeah, yeah. That what guy. are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> Free ticket. <laughs> that's why we're here. <laughs> well, Abby plays an older style. Actually, the older style of of, of any of us uh, goes back to the African origins of the banjo. Um, Obviously, the the slaves came over and brought uh, the knowledge of how to how to make these instruments and um, and uh, and their music from Africa unwillingly. Mm, and um, there's a, the story goes. Um, I learned this from watching your documentary, actually, Bela. <laughs> <laughs> Called "Throw Down Your Heart." Starring this finger. <laughs> <laughs> but the story goes that. Um, the slave traders start to, started to realize that more of the slaves would live to the other side and be, you know, usable, saleable. Um, less of them would die under those oppressive, horrible conditions if they heard a banjo being played from their hometown. And their spirits would actually stay intact with their bodies. And more of them would live to the other side. And so it became a profitable business to find the banjo player in town, put them on the ship and send them over. And... Uh, Bela was in one town where they said um, the people would say, hide your banjo players when the slave traders would come to town because they were looking for, looking for more banjo players to put on the ships on their ways over to, to the States. And so it's a very bitter root, um, the, the origins of the banjo in America, but um, an amazing music. And it, uh, the, the original blues was played on the banjo um, on those plantations. Yeah. And the, the magical... Clawhammer style really is so strongly connected to what appears to be an in instrument from Gambia called the Akanting. And that is actually a three-stringed instrument, but it also has the short, the short uh, drone string, which makes it pretty identifiable that they're connected. And then if you watch a clawhammer player use their fingernails on their first two fingers and then the upstroke with their thumb, it looks almost entirely like an Akanting player. Yeah, the right hand oh, is yeah. incredible. It's that, incredibly that, that's similar. The, that's the part that's hard to ignore when you see the video of the way these guys play their accountings. It just looks, the right hand is just exactly the same. And I, um, the musicians in Mali, their right hands are pretty similar too on some of the, the Hallam and the, um, the Ngoni. But, um, but um, mm. the accounting was made in, uh, near, near a city called Banjul, out of Banjul. the Banjolo tree. <laughs> so that was also a so little hint. There seems really? to be a connection. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying because I wasn't there, but uh, there, it certainly came from West Africa and somewhere around yeah. there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But anyway, can you show show a little just so of yeah. what a basic claw hammer? This is a basic role. Um, I, I have to say that there's a lot of different ways of playing claw hammer banjo too, um, and the way I play is connected to my mentor that I studied with, a guy named Riley Bogus in Walkertown, North Carolina, and he studied uh, from. I can't say studied exactly, but he sat on the porch and played with Fred Cockrum and Tommy Jarrell, who are two amazing musicians um, from Surrey County, North Carolina. And uh, the style that they play, people call round peak. 
and it's a style where um, you strike down with the first finger on the second string. And before you do anything else, this is a really unique piece of this kind of banjo playing. As a part of the roll, you pull off on the first string with your left hand. Without, without striking. Without striking. So this is entirely a sound that's coming from... And that's the second sound you hear in the roll. So it... And then I strike down with my middle finger on the first string that I just pulled off on. And then I pull up with a thumb. So it sounds like this. And then you can start to sort of mute the first string with your first finger as it falls off of the second string it can kind of mute the first string in its sound so it sounds like a, a little drum or a percussive cluck mm -hmm. that's not a, a typical claw hammer style that's actually a, a pretty unusual um, well the folk revival kids loved the round peak style so it's quite common now but um, there's also frailing uh, which could be any number of things. People do a lot of different things. If you're in Appalachia, people will say there's a different there's a different way in every holler, and people just come up with what they do. Yeah. And so you do the washburn, do the <laughs> <laughs> uh, derived heavily from from you know uh, uh, Riley Boggess. But what's yeah. the base the basic claw hammer strum? If you weren't doing round peak, what mm. is that? Well, I don't think there is a claw hammer is an umbrella term, and I think that you could call you could say frailing. Um, yeah. kind of play your bass notes on the third and fourth string and brush the strings with a combination of your first and second finger and let your uh, let your thumb just drop on the drone string. Yeah, it's really not an up pluck with the thumb. It's just a, as the hammer, the, the hammer of the hand, it's, it's really quite incredible when guitar pickers in particular sit down to start playing claw hammer banjo. Right away, they want to move all their digits separately. They're really <laughs> attached to digit separation <laughs> mobility. But um, <laughs> it's just not a priority, nor is it actually useful in this situation. You want your whole arm to function like a, a hammer. That just, literally, that's, that's what my whole arm is doing. And then I learn the placement of these two fingers so that the, the movement is just microscopic. And really, it's just kind of a lashback what's happening with the fingers. I strike down and they move a little bit. And the thumb really just kind of rests on the fifth string and pulls down as the whole hammer moves away. And most claw hammer players don't want the thumb to come out too much. I think it's classier if the, if the fifth string is back in the, in yeah, the sound a little bit. Yeah, that's true if it's right? more subtle. Yeah. Otherwise, it takes everything over and you can't hear the melody suddenly. And then there's a piece called drop thumb, which is where uh, while you're playing your frailing style or your round peak style, you drop your thumb down to help create melodies. And this would be a, a common, a, a round peak tune that I learned from Riley called Backstep Cindy.
Thank you. <laughs> Notice uh, it's a lot about the open strings, mm. and uh, Abby's very, um, well, most clawhammer players really work around tunings to, to get from place to place. It's true. So I'm, I can be a bit of a um, frustrating collaborator because um, I, it takes me quite a while to tune between different keys. Mm. And uh, if you're a part of an old-time jam, you all probably know this, Josie, you guys have probably been having some jams the last few days. You basically stay in one key for quite a while, and maybe after an hour and a half of playing in that key, you say, should we go to D? <laughs> And then everybody takes about a half an hour to tune to D. <laughs> so, so on stage, I have to think really carefully about the set list and the order so that I have time to tune into the new open tunings because it, it is so meaningful on the Clawhammer banjo to be able to hear those open strings ringing. Um, it's a key piece of it all. And then the different tunings are so inspiring too. Like there's a little satchel tuning, hop high tuning, dead man's tuning, um, uh, the mountain modal tuning. There's so many different types of tunings. and When you're collaborating, so you do a lot of collaboration with um, musicians from China. Yeah, yeah. Do you do, like, is there a certain tuning that's a little bit more of a sweet spot with yeah. jamming with? Actually, mountain yeah. modal tuning ah. in G tends to be a in really okay. great place to yeah. be. Mm hmm. Mm. Just in case Just you're traveling case. to China with your old-time banjo. <laughs> Note to self. <laughs> <laughs> Cluck old hen. It really delivers. <laughs> I love it. And Baylor, do you play any claw hammer? So, uh, no, well, I, I played a little claw hammer when I was uh, trying to convince Abby to hang out with me. And then I realized that... <laughs> Once she decided she was willing to hang out with me, we, we really only needed one claw hammer player in the family. Indeed. It was, it was better was that way. He was never very good at it. Because <laughs> I was never very good at it. <laughs> but I can play with three fingers pretty good. Um, should I explain yeah, yeah, this that uh, thing that I do? Um, well, uh, unlike Abby, I use finger picks. Um, two finger picks and a thumb pick. And... Um, the style that I started with that made me so excited about playing the banjo in the first place was hearing Earl Scruggs play. And Earl Scruggs, um, he was on a, a television show called The Beverly Hillbillies that some of you may know and some of you may not know. I'm discovering now there's a lot. Of, do you know that, Sal? I know the show. Okay, yeah. all right. Yeah. So I'm <laughs> discovering back home that, that there's a lot of times when I'll play the Beverly Hillbillies theme and people come up to me after the show and say, what was that tune you played? And everybody applauded, but I didn't know it. And <laughs> it, there was a time when that was just such a part of um, American culture that it was, uh, it was actually a problem for, for us banjo players because it was a joke. You know, it was a silly song. And, but as we all know, banjo is very serious business. <laughs> But Earl Scruggs sounded kind of more like this. So. Yeah. So the, me the mechanics of it, I mean, Abby's, she's a rippler. I'm a rippler, but we get our ripples with different uh, techniques. Obviously, she doesn't use finger picks. She uses her, the downstroke of her fingernails, but I use the upstroke of my two fingers and a downstroke of my thumb. And between those three uh, revolving, um, attacking 
devices. Um, really great chemistry. <laughs> well, no, no, no finger or thumb has to move that fast, right? Because they're alternating. So, I mean, if you really had to play as fast as a banjo is playing, you know, you couldn't move that fast. But because of these open strings that we have, we find these ways to, to play very fast. And um, not that it's all about playing fast, but that's, that's part of the deceptive quality of banjo playing. Because if you see somebody playing the banjo really well, it, it looks like they're not doing much of anything. And that's, that's always been interesting about Earl Scruggs. He'd be playing and you'd be like, wow. He's just, he's like, he doesn't even look at the banjo and this incredible sound is coming out of his instrument. It's just this stunning tone. It's driving like crazy. It's got this forward lean. That is what we, a lot of us love about bluegrass, but actually that's an interesting thing. In old time music, it doesn't really do that. Old time music is a little more relaxed. So one of the things Abby and I have to work on is where are we gonna meet? I mean, am I gonna pull back a little bit to make it a little funkier? Is Abby gonna push? Is she gonna drive it like the bluegrass guys do? But anyway, just I'll just show you what a couple of open rolls sound like um, with my finger picks and my open banjo. Here's one, a uh, couple that I, couple I learned. One is uh, the forward, backward. Let's see. No, let's try the the thumb in and out roll. This is what, what this one's called. What's it called? Thumb in and out. And that's pretty cool because you play all the eight notes of the measure, you know, and you get all over, you use all the strings of the banjo. And there was this one called the forward-backward roll. Check this out. So that's where you go forward, hit the fifth string. You go forward from the thumb, middle index, then you hit the fifth string, and then you go backwards. So forward, pivot off the fifth string, and then go backwards. And then add one extra with your first finger uh, to make a full measure. I used to be a horror at the folk, uh, folk jams because that was the only role I knew. And so I would go and jam with everybody and I would just play that role. And if we played a song and had a bunch of chords, it'd be. Sounds pretty nice there, but if, if you're doing it for like four hours at a jam, everybody hated my guts by the end of that thing. Plus, I wasn't very good at it. But anyway, um, Earl Scruggs did all these great things with the hammer-ons and these certain positions um, that, that the banjo just sings in. And, uh, and then there were people that went on from Earl Scruggs and started adding all these other techniques. And I'll try and do it briefly, but um, the first major innovation after this was uh, a guy named Don Reno who started to play the banjo um, using his thumb and first finger almost like a flat pick instead of having a pick to go up and down with he alternated thumb down index up and so he could play licks like a guitar player would or it kind of had that sort of dixieland kind of the licks he would play where the they, they fit the banjo but they were of a certain time but what they got away from the, the great thing about like the way Abby is playing in the Earl Scruggs style, which is you're always alternating strings. You don't play the same string twice in a row because um, it, it means the notes can ring into each other. But once you start doing this style, um, you're getting away from that altogether. Um, so if you were trying to play a fiddle tune with that style, um, something like... Like a, a tune that has some some uh, scales in it, right? Okay, so after many years after this style that I was telling you about, uh, a guy named Bill Keith, and around the same time, 
a guy named Bobby Thompson came up with this, this amazing way of playing where they alternated strings while playing scales on the banjo. So get the, to get the picture, um, if you were doing a normal scale up, you might think it'd be something like this. It would go up. To go up the scale, you would go up the neck. But with this idea, you would actually go down to get the next note. So you hit first note open, second note closed, but on the lower string at the seventh fret, instead of the second string of the same, you go. Then you hit the third string open, fourth string closed, first string open, second string closed, etc. And then it sounds like this. And you could do scales. Which, um, different from the Reno style I was showing you, the single string style, um, all of that ringing continues. And that's one of the really cool things that, that, that happened. This was in the 60s that changed Earl Scruggs style and opened the door to this whole new way of playing. And when I came on the scene, the door was cracked open and, and I was so excited to just dive in there and find out all the things you could do with these possibilities, these basically these three styles, from Scruggs style, Reno style, and the Keith style or the melodic style. And then you just cracked it. it open and smashed it apart. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, the first thing I realized was with the, with the Reno style, uh, he would play out of these positions. Earl Scruggs would too. He'd play out of the open position. And then he had the second inversion here. And he'd play out of the third inversion. And it would repeat. And that was kind of what he would do. So even if he was doing a... Uh, uh, playing a tune up here would be he'd use that position or or he'd go back and forth and when Reno would use those positions he'd use them to make uh, little scale legs that sort of thing. But what, what I was trying to figure out in the 70s when I got my banjo is you've got this position and this position, but what's in there? There's gotta be some notes in there. <laughs> and I went to a jazz show um, uh, of Chick Corea and Return to Forever, and uh, there was a, a guitar player named Al Demiola, and he was like shredding all up, the, up down the neck, every single note, and then there was a bass player named Stanley Clark, and he was shredding all up and down the neck, and he was hitting every single note, and he was like, oh, I left, left that note out, I better go back and get it. <laughs> And uh, he would just, and after that show, I was like, well, all those notes that those guys were shredding are on the banjo too, and why don't I know them? Why don't we know them? So that night, I was up most of the night just learning the modes, finally, that, that, that for some reason hadn't made it onto bluegrass banjo, and it was things like this. Which, which enable you to start to play the whole neck rather than being stuck in a position. It means I can play a... to know the whole neck is this whole uh, open territory to play in rather than oh I gotta play here I gotta play here and that's the nature of it so that's kind of probably the biggest leap that I made I'm, I'm intrigued to know so you, you obviously have a thirst for sort of breaking barriers and innovation like, do you, have you always been like that like do you have sort of this like I must keep I must keep that drive like is it just in yeah. you or yeah, I'd say it's pretty. Yeah. It's 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 
probably connected to um, feelings of, of low self-worth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. honestly, I mean, it's funny, but it's true. Because you've got to have some kind of a, a, of, of a motor mm, that gets you going. Sure. And so um, if you hate yourself, that's a good one. Yep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Great motivation. No, I don't hate myself. But, but I, I felt like between myself, I had things I wanted to overcome in myself, but also mm. the banjo had also had things to overcome because at that time, this is the 70s, just after the 60s, you might remember the 60s, um, there was so much negative press about the banjo. The banjo was d- deliverance, which was about, mm. in a lot of people's minds, it was about uh, a male rape scene, you know, more than the music and the, and the banjo was the music. Yeah. Um, no, it was a male rape scene, yeah. Right, well, that yeah. too, but then, then the, the incest kids on the porch, ding, 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 you know, playing the Chocolate banjo. Tape. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, so... <laughs> Well, it was it was a, a guy from outside the culture playing guitar, and then a kid, a kid. Yeah, I, I know what you're saying, but but it was a bad image for the banjo, you know. So we were all. That's what what. If I walked down the street with a banjo, people didn't go, "Oh, what a cool old instrument that comes from African descent." They go, "Yeehaw, squeal like a pig, dude," you know. And and so I I didn't like that because I was really serious about the banjo. So um, so yeah. So and the other thing that was going on is growing up in the '60s was all of this explosive creativity. So if you were uh, into music in those days, you were into the idea of moving forward and finding something new to do, like all our favorite people were doing. Mm. So really, it's kind of human nature. Yeah. yeah. I guess there's a lot of people that sort of have that drive to do interesting things, but not do it as phenomenally as as yourself. But do do you find in other parts of your life you're sort of as driven to Break barriers? Like well, um, I'm very neat. <laughs> I was just about to say, he really overachieves at the domestic housekeeping. <laughs> I'm pretty much a slob in every other area of my life. <laughs> yeah. I was actually really intrigued to know that, like, if you are just, you know, completely like a meticulous with oh the way you do goodness, dishes. No, or no. No. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm not. I'm not. No, I've got this one thing that I, I kind of live live for, and uh, and I wake up and I think, how am I going to get to a banjo? We have a three-year-old kid. Maybe he'll sleep late. <laughs> um, Good luck. That leads me into a, a question that I had here about Juno. So you have a three-year-old who I yeah. met earlier, and it's a shame he's not here because he's very beautiful. He's Is so it? beautiful. Yeah, curly blonde hair and. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what it's like touring with a three-year-old? It's, I mean, it's, it's wonderful. I mean, people say when you have a kid that your everything changes, and mm. we found that to be true. I mean, we just don't have the same kind of priorities or the same kind of ability to do to things we used to do. I mean, after this, I'm going to go home and go to sleep. Yeah. And in the old days, I would have, you know, <laughs> gone out and had a great meal and drank a lot and stayed up late and walked around the town and been like, I'm in Melbourne, yeah, you know. <laughs> and, now, and now I'm going to, I was up at three with a three-year-old. And, it sounded like, um, kind of like one of the Muppets there. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I sound like after I drink a lot, or at least I think I can't remember anymore. <laughs> yeah, so everything's just different. I think our whole yeah. lives are based around the idea that we want him with us, but we also want to make sure... Uh, being on the road with us is um, is okay. Mm. Is okay for him. 
is okay for a three-year-old. And so we build a lot of our lives around making sure we're there with him, that mm-hmm. there, there's always someone caretaking him, that there's a family of people who love him with him. And, um, and we're going to start preschool when we get back from Australia, literally the day after, if he can keep his eyelids open. We're going to take <laughs> him to preschool. And do you feel that, um, that your songwriting's changed at all, like the, the, both of you, so the way that you compose since you've had Juno? Well, we haven't written much since, <laughs> but uh, the first album was pretty. We pretty much had the songs before we had the before baby, uh, and then we started recording them. You know, in most cases, don't you think? Well, a number of them, yeah. Most of them, mm-hmm. yeah. So, um, so now we're finding out now that we, as we try to write our second record, which we're hoping to finish around the end of the year or in the next first couple of months of next year, that. Um, it's just hard to get the time and the focus in in the middle of uh, being a family, but we're figuring yeah. it out. Yeah. We're figuring it out. We've got mm-hmm. some things already that we're excited about, and that—that's where that's more likely to reflect parenthood in our writing together mm. than um, like a Wiggles album. Mm. Okay. Pretty much, f- I want to hear a Fleck Washburn kids album. That well, we are be... writing a song right now called "Let It Go," and I oh, think yeah. that you are going to be the only people who know this, uh, or anyone who happens to listen to this podcast, but. It's really about us encouraging our child to actually poop because oh. he's gotten to the point where he doesn't want to poop Yeah, he, poop he doesn't at think all. it's that great to poop, but we th- we're trying to explain to him that it's a pretty, pretty good thing, and you might feel differently about this someday. <laughs> Just let it go. Just let it go. <laughs> Could you play it for us? Or? We're not quite there okay. yet. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, is it is it Abby or Abigail? I should ask. Either way. Either. Okay. Um, I have a question here around. Um, I I see you as somebody who's created um, sort of almost ripples of revolution with the banjo, also with your different collaborations that you've done. Um, yeah, truly. And in two thir- 2013, you were named the U- the first U.S. China Center Fellow for your work as an ambassador of American culture to China. And I'm just wondering um, how a girl from Illinois became so deeply fascinated with China. Well, I went to China uh, after my freshman year of college, and I went mostly out of curiosity and a desire to go far away. I think that was a big piece of it, too. Just go far away, somewhere where people didn't know me, where I could just try things differently. Maybe life would be less effed up if I just went far away. But that doesn't really work out that way. Everything follows you no matter where you go. And that, that was a good lesson, too. Even to Melbourne. Unless you learn, <laughs> unless you learn to let it go. <laughs> just let it go. And you can just leave it somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> In a big pile. <laughs> Okay. Then what happened? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I honestly didn't like it the first time I was there. I thought it was uh, real dirty. I was in Shanghai, and this was 1996. And uh, and I just couldn't have any meaningful interaction with anybody above and beyond. Cheaper for you! You know, people trying to sell me stuff or uh, kids trying to practice their English on me. And I, I, not that that's a problem, but I just didn't feel a real connection to anyone while I was there because I didn't speak the language. And I don't think Americans are used to the idea that they have to learn another language to get to know people. And uh, I think I was victim to that mentality as well. And when I came back to the States, I, I was like, ah, 
forget about it. I'm not going, I'm not going back to China again. This is, this, it's too hard and it's too dirty and it's too uncomfortable. And, um, well, my high school, um, my house, high school bedroom on the walls, I was one of those weird kids in, in high school that, uh, instead of having like a boy band on my, well, that's not true. I had new kids on the block inside my closet door. <laughs> if anybody knows who that boy band was yeah, from the nineties. Yeah. yeah, I was obsessed. Yeah, yeah, yeah Joey. Um, <laughs> Danny. Danny. <laughs> Danny for you, yeah. And, uh, but I had, you know, Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, and I had the United Nations mural. You know, these were the posters in my room. And instead of going to my senior prom, I went to the Youth United Nations Disarmament Conference in Winnipeg, Manitoba. <laughs> so <laughs> when I came back uh, from China and I was sleeping in that bed and looking up at Gandhi and Martin Luther King every day when I'd wake up, I was like... It started to hit me that I was disenchanted with 1.3 billion people on the face of the planet. Mm. I thought, I got to do something about this, and I have to make peace with this. And so I decided I had to go back to China, and I had to learn Chinese enough to make some meaningful connections. And luckily, the second time I went back, I went back six months later to Sichuan province in uh, western China, and I met a beautiful lady named Old Lady Wong. She said... Lao Shi Hao, which means old is good. And so she loved it that I'd call her Old Lady Wong. And uh, so I would go to her house at least twice a week, and she would use poems and um, stories and songs. And uh, two of the songs I sing come from her, uh, old songs, folk songs. And she would use those things to teach me Chinese. So instead of Dutch teaching Chinese from a, you know, some kind of pedagogical viewpoint, she'd say, here's something beautiful I want to tell you about and teach you Chinese through that. And it just was so moving. And she shared with me all kinds of stories about her life, about the cultural revolution, things that opened my heart, you know, not just an intellectual, um, intellectual pursuit, but like a, a really deep, um, compassionate understanding of, of the, what it might have been like to be Chinese in those times. And uh, I came out of it knowing that I was married to China, that for the rest of my life I would be trying to help connect um, people who had the same first impression as me or people who never get to travel out of the country or never take the time to travel out of the States to um, understand that there's uh, such deep beauty there, that it's rich and it's poignant and it can teach us a lot about how we live um, so, yeah, so I, I decided right then and there, this was 1997, that I, for the rest of my life I would be doing some kind of work related to that. I thought I would end up being a lawyer, you know, because that's really connects people. <laughs> but I ended up, luckily, I ended up, um, because of my deep interest and fascination with Chinese culture, I ended up learning about American culture. Um, it attuned me to the fact that I was less aware of American culture than I ever knew and um, when I heard old-time music being played or on a record player at a party in college I went "Ooh, what's that now that's that's something mm. American and beautiful and profound and, mm. and the more I looked into it I realized America albeit a very young country does share those ancient tones with China where it's old mm. Scotch-Irish it's it's West African 
it's deep, it's timeless, it's yeah. eternal, just like the Chinese culture is. And so I decided I would, I would take my banjo with me, being a lawyer and all, to uh, <laughs> China. And instead, of, you know, at karaoke nights with yeah. your clients, I'd, I'd take my banjo and bust out an American ballad, you know. I love it. It's my big plan. We should play a, play yeah. a, a Chinese tune. Oh, that yeah. would be beautiful. Yeah, that Going to G modal. Could take me a half an hour. Be fine. We got time. You got time? Yeah. Do you speak any Mandarin Baila? Nope. 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 Now I've been I've been there um, I guess four four times? Three three or four times. And and it's it's incredible. Mm. I mean, I've loved going. We got to go to Tibet once, which yeah. was pretty surreal, uh, for a lot of reasons. But uh, we got to play um, Lhasa High School. Tibet University, the Animal Husbandry College of Linger. Hot spots. <laughs> and they had, like, uh, the, go the American government and the Chinese government had collaborated to have us go on this trip, which was pretty incredible. But we were being watched, and so we'd be in this, in one town, and we'd see a guy walking by, and then three days later we'd be in another town, and we'd see the same guy walking by, wow. checking us out. And apparently they, were, they didn't want us to, um, um, well, we were told that the big concern was that somebody might try to defect to us and then get in a lot of trouble, go to jail mm -hmm. for a long time. And so there was a lot, uh, at least that's what we were told, we were part told, of why yeah. these people were there when we pointed out that the same guy was there. Protecting them from mm -hmm. us. Yeah. From what might happen to them if mm -hmm. they tried to. But so. And, they, and the, they obviously just didn't want people playing dueling banjos in China. No, very yeah. frightening. They yeah. saw deliverance. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so. So this is a song that I learned from Old Lady Wong, and it's called Tang Chu Lai Yang Yang. It means the sun has come out, and we are so happy. It's an old folk song from the mountains of Sichuan. Tang Chu Lai Lord, Xi Yang Yang Oh Lang Lord. 跳起變的浪浪子光子上山岡烏浪浪<音樂><音樂> Chu 
光泽，不愁春雾冷Amazing. <laughs> It、um, was Chinese. <laughs> It's almost as if、um, I've just never heard Clawhammer and、um, Three Finger Style played together ever before. I don't think. It works、It's, pretty well.、Yeah. Surprisingly,、um, we don't know of a of a group historically that's done it, especially、mm. a duo. We, we, there's definitely been moments where there's、People、a song or two、too. here or there, but、uh, as a Uh, a whole musical offering.、Yeah. We don't actually know of it, but it's pretty natural. It excites、yeah. us for that reason because、mm. there is such little precedence. We can kind of make it up as we go,、Absolutely. and we're not being compared to anything else. So, do you feel like gift? You're almost at times like the rudder, sort of the ship at, at times, and then you're almost like the sails taking it to really adventurous places.、That's、but、nice、then I see sometimes you.、Mm-hmm. You change in between in these really sweet spots.、So. Abby tends to be the rhythm section. Like、yeah. she, the songs are built around her parts, and then I'm looking for ways to get under or over,、mm. uh, and and find、uh, ways to add variety. Usually, not all the time.、Yeah. Uh, I'm interested to know, because、um, Bela, you've played in some amazing、um, outfits and done some amazing projects,、um, and in this context.、Um, Do you find yourself still kind of trying to break through barriers and and challenging yourself in this in this space?、Uh, I think it's about serving the songs,、yeah. and there's plenty of room with two people、mm. um, to get to do a lot of the things that I love to do um, because um, because there's just two of us.、Mm. Where if there the more people that are there, the less you play. That's the way it works in、yeah. in music. If, if if there's one person, he has to do the whole thing. He has、mm. to make the rhythm and the solo and the Everything make it all happen by themselves. If there's two, it's spread. And because Abby's such a wonderful singer,、um, I love the songs that she comes up with and the way she sings traditional songs. So I, I enjoy looking for a way to,、um, you know, add to them. And I have an open canvas. Like her part is usually the canvas. It's like it's got all this shape, but there's all these places I can fill in. I can, I can make every verse different, every chorus different. I can. Improvise if I want to, if I'm not feeling it a certain way. Although we, as time goes on, we 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 generate towards pretty set arrangements. But there's a few, always a few places I can screw around, and then that, then we we open it up by each having a place in the show where we can do our own things、yeah. separately. And then that means if I have to blow off some steam doing some psychotic <laughs> jazz fusion solo banjo piece, I can do that. But I don't have to. But I know that、um, as much as we're doing this, there's still going to be you know times when I'm going to go and. Play with other people, play with an orchestra, or play with the flectones, or 
uh, to Korea, people like that, and yeah. it's, it's so I know, I know every situation, what's different about it becomes interesting to me and exciting that Absolutely. when we do this, I want to do it all the way. I'm not trying to do everything else I can do. I'm trying to do this, and it's the yes. same thing in, every, in the other situations. If I'm playing with an orchestra, I'm not going to be trying to improvise. I'm going to be trying Absolutely. to play the, the piece that's written just like they are. Mm. So, uh, but here, it's it's a different setup, and it's there's a lot of wonderful things about it. Do you, do you feel that you're a long-term couple? Um, you mean are we going to stay together? Yeah, I was <laughs> going to. Well, I asked you that. I asked you that backstage, and then no. <laughs> um, yeah, what that experience is like. I've only ever played in a in a band with um with my sister, and I know that I. You know, we can. There's a certain amount of body language, and you just know each other so yeah, well. Right. I, I wonder if, um, what that experience is like playing with your, yeah, long-term partner. Well, we had a good um, before we got married. We got a, we had a little bit of a trial run, not exactly, not as a duo, but in a quartet with a, our group, the Sparrow Quartet, which began as a, a group that went to China for that Tibet tour, mm-hmm. and we. Um, Bela and I got to experience what it was like to work with each other musically in that situation while we were still an, not a married you know, couple. And uh, I think we worked out a lot of kinks in that. We figured out how the other person operates, and by the time it, it, we, we came around to doing this duo, I think we were just ready. We were yeah. ready for what yeah. we were going to be encountering. Yeah, it's not always smooth. It's, it doesn't mean it's, we're always going to be on the same exact page. Or, mm-hmm. or we, we, I think, if anything, the hardest part is that we operate at different speeds. And maybe part of it's just like a difference between being an old-time player and a bluegrass player. As a bluegrass player, you're always on the front edge. You're always in a hurry. You're pushing, you're pushing. And that's my personality a little bit. And Abby is like, oh, now, hold on. This, what's the hurry? Let's, you know, so. I'm like the caterpillar that sits on the wall and thinks and dreams of being a butterfly for a long time. And everybody's like, what is she doing? You know, and I'm just sitting there. And then suddenly I'm like, whoosh. Yeah, she gets. She always, she always gets there. That's the thing. And, and where she where she gets is someplace that it wouldn't have gotten to if we had rushed through it. So I've learned yeah. over the time working together to res- to respect the way she the way she does it, and, and that there's a reason for it, and that it's a different outcome. Yep. And I like it. It's cool. And I've gotten used to the <clears throat> aggressive, you know. <laughs> lean in the forward lean you know well you have to admit i do get things done no he does yeah. he really does when it comes to banjo playing well i mean I, <laughs> but i mean i'm good at getting a job like okay you're supposed to turn in this thing by this date i'm good at that That's because true. my personality is hey when are we going to work on this thing That's and true. um and so i can be in our relationship that can be more my role it's, it's true like i don't have sure to be we... on my phone very often because right. he's I'm Always like, taking care like, honey, of stuff. Honey, you have a, an, uh, I have to wake you up. For, you've got an interview in ten minutes. That's <laughs> <Yeah>. true. <laughs> but so it works out, you know. When when you're practicing, like at home, I mean, obviously you've got a three-year-old now, so it uh, there's not as much spare time, obviously. Um, mm. But with yeah, like I mean, I'm really interested the different sort of practicing styles that you have, in that uh, obviously. Yeah. Abby doesn't even play like uh, till the, the day before the, the tour starts. But I yeah. think about it a lot. And, and, and I'm usually stressing out, watching her not play, going, you know, we've got a big tour starting tomorrow, right, honey? <laughs> and then she plays great, you know. But the kind of playing that I do, I actually have to. Like, if, if, yeah. if I want to play the way, I, the way I know I can play when I'm warmed up, I have to be playing. I have to, it's like if you want to be a runner... 
uh, and you're going to run a marathon and you mm. just show up, you know, and you haven't been running, that's not going to work out well. Mm. I feel like there's a standard that I'm trying to hit with just finger dexterity that only comes from a lot of playing. So when we don't play for a long time, it worries me a lot more than it worries her because her, her playing is very intuitive and natural and um, it just seems to come out that My way. My role is so different, yeah. Yeah, yeah so, so we have different reasons to feel the way we feel, but yeah. we figure it out, you know. Yeah, I love that. If you can't see it, there's a coy <laughs> smile being exchanged <laughs> between both of us. You know we have a gig tomorrow, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, Bailey, you've won, is it 15 or 16 Grammy Awards? Somewhere in between those two numbers. <laughs> yeah. You're like the Michael Phelps of, uh, of music. Or <laughs> How many has yeah. he won right now at Rio? Did he win another one today or something? Um, before, Bela, uh, won, uh, before Bela and I won the folk... Graham, the Grammy for folk album. Um, I had I had won no Grammys, and one of my favorite introductions we've ever had <laughs> was on stage in Scotland. Um, someone got up there and said, "And between them, they have 15 Grammys." <laughs> Zero, 15. <laughs> Accurate. Not anymore. You're catching up. I know it's true. <laughs> I love it. That was love it. a great introduction, though. <laughs> It's funny. I was wondering of all, it's 16 now, obviously, between the two of you. Um, it um, might be 17. Is it 17? No, it's complicated it, because oh, it's compl- there's, um, there, there's a Latin Grammy, which oh. doesn't get counted as a, as a Grammy, but it is oh. a Grammy. And it's, so that's confusing. And so um, it's somewhere between 15 and 16. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I was wondering it's way if, more than anybody should have. Don't, <laughs> no, I understand exactly. that. I don't, I don't understand and how this happened. <laughs> yeah. out, of, out of all of those, uh, is there, I mean, uh, it's a bit of a, a tough one to, but is there one or a couple that you sort of feel a certain amount of gratitude for? Yeah, I think it was uh, the um, 1988 Best Hair in a, a, a Bluegrass <laughs> Rock Band. Yeah, I treasure that one. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I have seen some pretty beautiful headbands that you guys wear. Oh. Yes. YouTube clips. So. Well, it's pretty incredible to win a, a Grammy with your wife on a project you made in your basement while Absolutely. the you know oh, while you yeah. while you had a three month uh, year old mm. upstairs yeah. sleeping. So it was that's... it was complex. It, we just didn't really understand the time suck of a um, literally a child that feeds off of a body. One of the bodies supposedly making a record full time in the basement. Yep. So that was really difficult. We had no idea. It was like 45 minutes in between feedings that I'd come down, just sleep deprived, and be like, "Okay, what are we doing?" <laughs> <laughs> and he he made it happen. Well, you made it happen too. Well, okay, yeah. <laughs> okay, that's true. I did. I did get there. We all made it happen. I did roll down the stairs. Um. I was thinking it's the kind of that time if anyone in the audience has any sort of juicy questions. Mm. I think I think this is just gonna turn on. So I'm gonna come I'll come over to you and I'll there's one down there and one over there. I think it's on. Yep. I guess this is directed more to Bella. Uh, many years ago, I was introduced to the mu- <clears throat> music of the early 20th century five-string banjo players like Ollie Oakley, uh, Vess Osman, Fred Van Epps, and some of their repertoire, which some of it was classical music, some of it was ragtime, uh, 
two numbers that come to mind would be, say, Whistling Rufus and Nola. You wouldn't perhaps be able to play one of those or both? Uh, yeah, I used to know Nola, and uh, there's another one. Uh That's all I'm going to do with that. But do you know that one? That's called a black. It's called Black Pepper, a spicy rag, and it's either Vess Osman or, or Fred Van Epps. But yeah, yeah. But Nola's a, 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 an incredible one too. Is there a question? Oh, over here. I'm just wondering what the chances are of he hearing a wee bit of the new Poo song. The new Poo song. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just a, a wee bit of it. Um, it's it's it, it really doesn't sound like a poo song at all. And, although we should write specifically for toddlers a poo song, don't you think? Absolutely. We have we have the entirely wrong banjos in entirely the wrong keys, so it would be very hard to do it for you. But I, I hopefully we have. Um, piqued your interest in buying the next album as a result of that introduction. Or as I would say, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think we've got another question over here. That's okay. When uh, you say poo song, it sounds like a French thing or something. Uh, Winnie the Pooh. Poo and poo song. <laughs> poo song. Poo song. So, I don't play banjo. I've messed around on guitar and I think learning to play banjo would be like me trying to learn to knit. Like I can paint really wildly, but knitting is so technical. I can knit. <laughs> Great. See, no, you we go. cannot. No, we cannot. Yes, I, 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 it's something you don't know about me. You can knit? <laughs> yeah. So when you said... <laughs> you are so full of it. No, no. no. I, I used to knit. Mm -hmm. But can you now? Has anybody got any knitting needles out there? Knit a banjo strap. So, when you said the 60s, I just had this crazy, silly idea about, does anyone ever break out on a banjo Jimi Hendrix style? And, and you did say something about psycho jazz fusion, so could you give us a demo of something like really out there on banjo, please? Uh. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. That's nice. <laughs> Sounds pretty silly, doesn't it? What about the psycho jazz <laughs> fusion? Oh, can you do that by yourself? Which part? <laughs> you said you play psycho fusion jazz with other groups. But yeah, well, you have to sing psycho fusion jazz. It's, it's said that uh, a gentleman is a, is a <laughs> person who knows how to play psycho fusion jazz but does not. <laughs> yeah. In other words, no. <laughs> <laughs> I think people are asking you very, very challenging questions. Yeah. I, I actually really want you to do a Wiggles song, but that'll be later. <laughs> what's, what's the earliest recorded banjo track, and can you play that? The Ooh. earliest recorded banjo track ever? Um, I don't ah. know exactly what it is, but I do know that, that in the 1800s, um, when they were started, started to do the first recordings, 
um, I guess they were cylinders. Um, there was um, uh, banjo players were uh, were some of the first choices to be recorded because the sound was it was uh, strident and clear. And there was these guys, um, and Bess Osman would be would have been one of them, wouldn't he? Um, the banjo kings they called them, and they were the first um, superstar pop, you know, stars that were recorded. So, but I don't know the exa exact years because because um, I guess it's kind of like you you have your areas. Like I really come in, I, I know quite a lot about from Earl Scruggs onward, um, but because um, for some reason I just have little tidbits of understandings about those players, but they were phenomenal. But those would be later styles of banjo playing that evolved later, right? I mean, so in terms of the early forms of banjo playing. You mean Scruggs, playing, yeah, Scruggs didn't right, happen Scruggs until... Right, Scruggs and Vess Osman and Fred and No, Van that's Epps. early. Well, that's, it's early, but yeah. it's not early like... Um, like uh, like slave slave blues on the banjo, right? Do, Something do you like know, that. Do you, do you know what, what years uh, those guys were? 1920s? Yeah. 1890s. Yeah, that's yeah. that's that's why I think there are some of the early. No, I would agree. Yeah. Earliest recordings. I was mm -hmm. just trying to think of. I mean, people were recording more for commercial reasons at that time than they were for the reason of um, preserving the sounds of the earliest banjo. Right. Music. Right. Um, it wasn't what happened. You started in the 60s. to hear more of of that in the twenties and thirties, mm -hmm. um, when there were archivists, which when archive, you know, being an archivist became a, a meaningful trade. Um, right. Yeah. I'm I'm wondering, um, sort of before the Second World War, there were lots of orchestra like orchestras with um, banjo, bass bass players and violins and cellos and like the whole gamut. Like right, the banjo people. orchestras. There were yeah. mandolin orchestras and yeah. banjo orchestras. And I'm wondering if they still exist in the States yeah, now. Yeah, they do. In fact, Bela did a gig where he was greeted, remember that? Mm -hmm. By a banjo club. Yeah. But it wasn't a banjo orchestra. It was mm. just, it was just a banjo club. Yeah, um, playing four-string stuff. I know in Pennsylvania, they, what do they call themselves? The... It's like the Shriners, but it's not the Shriners. They, uh, oh, I don't know, but there are there are a few. They tend to be um, stock full of uh, elders. You know, it's, we it's have not a dream like about, the hip young thing to do these days. We have anything. a dream about putting together a banjo orchestra. In fact, we just bought uh, uh, yeah. a, a banjo bass yeah. that was uh, that it was made in the twenties. It's, it's it's six seven, and a half, six feet, and a half tall, feet tall. It's seven feet in its road case and um, size of a taiko drum. You know. It's huge and it sounds really cool. So, yeah. but that's we haven't figured out how we're going to get that going. We've got to find someone who's willing to play it because it's going to mess up our hands. Mm -hmm. Somebody dumb, like <laughs> like maybe our stagehand Josie might be perfect for that job. <laughs> She's, She's just raising, raising her, her hand, hand to let us know she would play. Yeah, we've got another banjo. question over here. I was just wondering, Abigail, you were talking about your different tunings. I was wondering. As a duo, when you play ballad, um, do you uh, is that an e-tuned banjo that you that you came came with? Tonight? Oh well, on our show we're going to be playing a variety of instruments, um, and uh, we couldn't bring them all over the instruments that we normally have with us on tour. But we I think we have five. Um, this one I started out with on on the railroad song is a uh, uh, it's uh, it's it's um, we call it a baritone banjo, and it's tuned um, a fifth below. So where my normal banjo is tuned to an open G that's tuned to a low C chord. And so that allows me to, to have bass lines and, and rolls and things underneath um, Abby's banjo. And then we also have a, 
a little ukulele banjo, which is tuned up high, and then Abby has the cello banjo, which is quite a bit lower than that one. It's an octave lower than her regular banjo. So we have pieces that um, marry the different banjos together for a song, and, um, and other ones, again, at home, the fretless banjo that we don't have with us on this trip. And then eventually we'll have a universe of, of banjos with us on the road and four semis and yeah. 25 banjo players. Is, is that similar to like the Pete Seeger, he'd had the long neck banjo and that was tuned down to C, is that a similar? That, was, that one went down to E. That was usually what it had three, three frets longer and the fifth string was in the same place. So this, this is G, so if you went three, three frets lower, uh, he'd be an E. And... Uh, the, it was a great idea for a person whose voice is lower than other people's and wants to be able to sing and play in open tunings, but you have to hold your arm all the way out here all the time, and so it was, uh, not everybody could do that. It was, it, it, um, but it, it can sound great, you know. But you've got to do that. Yeah. There are some beautiful Melbourne musicians over here who've got a question. Thanks, <laughs> um, though. Well, I've found myself here today because I'm a rock and roll kind of guy and um but obviously I've, I've got a bit of a Celtic thing going on too and I uh, <laughs> I, 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 I like I've been sort of uh going backwards in time from you know Radiohead to Chuck Berry to like the Appalachian Mountains and I kind of feel like that's where the Scots can maybe take credit for inventing rock and roll um, because, uh, um, because you know, like you're saying about the, the West African instrument and the, the scales meeting maybe the fiddle tunes and all that. Mm -hmm. And um, I was just wondering if you think there's any credence to my theory. <laughs> well, I, I know yeah. that, that Celtic music, Irish and Scottish music, uh, it, it's, it, the connection to, to African music is, is undeniable. And, and in fact, when you get to Africa, a lot of the music that's played there are these uh, sixes and nines. They're, they're usually, it's like a one-part jig, you know, but, uh, and then they just vary it and vary it and vary it, but the time signature is the same. And then you have, you know, there's, uh, it works so well together, it's just hard to imagine that there isn't some reason for it. Well, and then, of course, it came together in, in, on the plantations in the American South. Right, you know? that's where they mixed. And that's and where more it really recently. mixed up for yeah. dance. They were a dance band. They'd get the, the banjo player on the plantation to play with a local Scotch or Irish fiddler, and they'd sit down and they figured out how to play together for these dances, and that's what became that um, the heartbeat of, of what people often do say is the, the trance-like syncopation, yet there's a, a feeling of a, of a backbeat of a sort. Um, and then there's these melodies you know, flowing on top of it, and that, that definitely could be the, the, the Scotch mother or father of rock and roll. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm just going to keep on telling people that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I, I think that it's I a think very it's strong connection. Yeah. It really is. Nice to each other? I don't know. I'll let you live if you play Foggy Mountain Breakdown with me, that sort of thing. <laughs> that, that's real nice stuff, yeah. So nice, yeah. In, in relation to that Celtic sound, um, I first heard you on Transatlantic Records, and I'd be most appreciative if you could play a Celtic tune. Uh, that must be for me. Transatla Transatlantic... Um, uh, 
what was it called, that album? Was it called Transatlantic Sessions? Or, yeah. Yeah. I, well, I spent some time in Ireland for a while, and I learned to, 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 to play those tunes uh, or, um, using my finger picks, which is a lot harder than doing it with a flat pick, but I can do a little bit of it just to show you kind of what it sounds like. What could I do? Or can I? Something like that. Is that on that record? Yeah. It's been about 25 years, something like that. So that's I, about I, I, I call I bush dances here in Australia, <laughs> and those two tunes are tunes that I call bush dances too. Really? Yeah. What's a bush dance? <clears throat> it's like a, yeah. like a square dance. Sounds like dirty. Kaylee, like where you guys met. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where we locked eyes. <laughs> Um, I know you play a Baylor, um, a lot of kind of jazz music, like with people like Chico and especially like with the Flectones and Victor Wood and like what kind of adjustment process is involved in taking an instrument like the banjo and playing a style like jazz? It's hard. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like a lifelong pursuit. It, it doesn't happen. Uh, it's not a fad. It's got to be something you commit to for a long, long time. And so I was a closet jazz player. I love jazz and and I would listen to these records and get excited. And sometimes I would listen to um, a jazz record, and after listening to it for a couple of hours, I'd pick up my banjo, and those jazz licks would just come out of my hands. And I knew it was possible. I didn't know what I was doing, but it would just sort of infect me. And I've, I've always found that um, when I'm playing with musicians, playing materials that I don't understand, if I can just relax and allow it to get inside me, it will. It will. Um, so some of those experiences um, really made me think it was possible um, to do. I, knew, I never really had any doubt that it was possible to play jazz on the banjo. I wasn't sure if I could do it with my background. And so, and, and I would say I, I've had successes and, and failures in that department because there's so much that you learn um, if, if you commit to jazz as a lifestyle, you know, and, and you do it for your whole life. There's, there's so many things that you're taught and um, uh, I, I just, I've, I've, I'm coming at it as a folk musician trying to learn jazz. So there are certain areas where I feel like really strong and confident, especially with rhythm and, and things like that. Um, and other areas like with, with harm, harm, harmony in particular, that I feel very uh, intimidated by the pianists and the and saxophone players who've had access to this information their whole life. And I'm kind of coming into it late and from the side and I really don't even read music very well. So it's a lot of it is, is by ear. So um, that's how I feel about it. And, and luckily, when I do get to do it, 
Um, I've got the deck stacked in my favor, like Flectones. Oh, we're going to do Bayless songs. It's his band. Yay. So if we do a jazz tune, it's one that I have a, a, more of a chance to succeed on because it's something that I'm, I'm, I'm actively working on. We're play, even playing with Chick. He's kind to me because uh, he doesn't have to be. He can play a lot of stuff that I could not follow. But um, we find some common ground. Yeah. Oh, do you want to get the mic? Yeah. Because it goes on a podcast. They want to hear your sweet tones. <laughs> we can hear my sweet tones. Just in reference to Chick Corea, I mean, I've only seen stuff on YouTube, but I would imagine that within that context, you're creating a whole new genre, subgenre of music, because it's a very unusual combination. Um, and you say some things haven't worked as well. Are there some things which have dismally failed? And and that's, that's not my question, but I'm, I'm really interested in the notion of that sort of uh, coming, you say coming as a folk musician, but there's a whole tradition of banjo playing in jazz, which, you know, is superseded by guitars and all that. But um, um, I'm just interested in the, uh, the notion of other combinations that you may want to investigate, say, not even within a category of jazz, just, mu just music, because it's... That's yeah. what it is, really. That's music, what I yeah. love to do. I like yeah. to find a, an area that hasn't been done. Like, if, if, if a whole lot of people are doing it, I don't see the point in going there. I'm looking for something that's where there's a big empty hole, like playing banjo with an Indian musician, like Zakir Hussain, which I've gotten to do. That's like, I'm not competing with anybody. There's like a wide open thing. But someday they'll, someone will fill that in. Someone will decide to spend. And, and um, because I have a certain level of skill and interest um, in, in, in a lot of different kinds of music and... and there haven't been that many people doing that. I get, I get to be the first person um, in some of these areas, and so um, and I try to do as many. I, I also have short attention span, so I, like after a year of something, I'm, I love to go do something else. And I feel like if, if any one of these things uh, could take a whole life, like like if I'm going to play classical music, um, that could just playing Bach could be a whole life. Learning to play Bach on the banjo. So I do a few pieces enough to get. Uh, um, to let it infect my playing, let me learn some things from, and then go on to something else. Then I go spend a bunch of time with a jazz musician and try and learn as much as I can from him for a few years, or, and uh, and hopefully that will also teach me more things about the banjo. And and uh, and then a, you know I get to go back home to a more uh, focused traditional kind of sound, and I learn a, a lot about how I can apply some of those things that I've been learning from all of these other places. Uh, and then I guess ho hopefully end up just soaking up things from all of these places and becoming just a musician of the world that, that when I write my own music all of these things might mix up in their own hopefully natural way not just like oh how can I do something wild that mixes this and that. I never think that way I just play I just get in a frame of mind and, and let things happen um, but because of all of these ingredients that I've been sort of sucking up different things come out and it comes out different so that's kind of more of a lifestyle uh, for me about how, how I look at it and what I try to do over here, back to China for a sec. <clears throat> um, I chair a company in Australia that's opened up a Chinese joint venture over some years. So I've been going up there and I've, been a I've just been blown away at, at what is happening to the world in China. I just think it's amazing. Mm -hmm. So what you've done, and to go there when you went there, now understanding US culture and all the rest of it, that's amazing in itself. To learn the language and then to be able to sing and play as you two do now, it's, to me it's almost incomprehensible <laughs> as to how good it is. Um, so my question really, it was two questions. One is, when you do a Chinese concert, 
um, obviously you've got to have a repertoire. So have you got 20 Chinese items or have you got 1,000 Chinese items? <laughs> and then secondly, will you do another one tonight? <laughs> Um, I don't have a thousand Chinese items, but um, I have a keen interest in it, and I think um, ch Chinese culture, uh, the, uh, I would say in general that the Chinese people really get excited by wenhua uh, jiaoliu, meaning like cultural um, exchange and cultural connection. So uh, I feel like I, if I, when I go over there and I bring this instrument and I play traditional American material, um, Appalachian songs, ballads, they're actually very excited to hear those songs. So I don't need to do my entire concerts in Chinese, luckily. But emceeing in Chinese and being able to say, you know, 接下来我们有另外一个传统美国的歌曲名字叫 uh, you know, Pretty Polly. That that's... <laughs> <laughs> really said, helpful. Your, your chicken is on a rampage and... <laughs> The president is in danger. Is that what you said? <laughs> How did you know? <laughs> You've been studying. Um, so it's really helpful to be able to speak about the songs in Chinese, and that's been really great. Um, what I tend to do at most of my shows, um, Bela and I did this together a number of times, is I'd, I'll find a local collaborator through the Cultural Bureau in China. So the government is in charge of a lot of the cultural activities all over China, and uh, you probably know about that, the Wenhuabu, the cultural... Uh, uh, cultural Bureau. And so um, you can call ahead and say, well, yeah, we're coming to play the show. And of course, because you, you know, are putting it on and, and say, is there a local collaborator we could play with? And so I'll end up usually doing a song or two or three with a local Chinese musician. And we'll come up with something together, combining Appalachian sounds and music with Chinese folk music. Um, and then there's just a couple of songs I can do that are um, Chinese folk songs. And then there's the ones you've written, too. There's the ones I've written, but I will have to say that <clears throat> the Chinese audiences tend to be much less interested in the songs I've written. Because tradition has proven itself, right? There's plenty of great material. Why would you have to create a new song? And there is one of the main differences between China and America. Um, in America, they want to hear the new thing you've written. What is it? You know, what's your creative process? You know, but in China, that's not the, not the thing people are eager to hear. But I, I, I always share it anyway, hoping that maybe there will be a spark of interest in, in you know, the creative side of things. Uh, um, yeah, so it's, um, it's a real mix of things, and um, the audience tends to be so res receptive because I'm able to communicate in Chinese, and that's. Um, just been so helpful. And I, I really do enjoy um, playing in China and, and emceeing in Chinese. I also really enjoy um, in America, you know, being at a bluegrass festival or especially the ones that are really out there in the boonies, you know, in Maury River, Virginia, or and, and then getting up on stage and playing these traditional Appalachian pieces, some original material that I've written in English, and then all of a sudden busting out something, you know, and... <laughs> Whole audience is there and they're folding chairs and they're like, what in the hell? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's pretty one fun, of my, yeah. my deep joys in life is, is doing that to people. But I, I do notice that almost every time, I mean, um, when you present something that's beautiful and awe-inducing and, and amazing about, about folk culture... It's, it's undeniable. People love it, and it's, um, it creates a bond. Um, 
even if, if the American people right there can't be face-to-face with someone Chinese, they can feel something Chinese that they they have a deep affinity for that they never knew they had. And I do create, believe that that creates a connection and a bond that um, makes it harder to dislike another country so completely and um, based on propaganda. You know? So it's, it's my way of fighting back. You know? Yay. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I'm not sure how much time we've got left. Maybe two more questions and a song. Somebody back there, were you, were, you, did, were you? Yeah. I just got um, Melody of Rhythm a couple of weeks ago. Um, absolutely awesome album. And I imagine you guys won't be around in another month, but... Uh, if you are, you should come to the Guildford Banjo Jamboree. Oh, I wish. Oh, yeah. that sounds groovy. That's, that's a recording that I, that I did with uh, Edgar Myers, incredible bass player, and Zakir Hussein, the kind of world's greatest tabla player, who also did a collaboration not too long ago um, with Celtic musicians, Scottish and Irish musicians, that was pretty incredible. It worked like, it sounded like it was supposed to be that way. So. Maybe one more question to to wrap us up. Yep. Thanks. Um, I'm really interested in in the African connection. Um, obviously, the slave banjo, the West African musicians, and and the instruments that you've encountered. Um, and Throw Down Your Heart was was remarkable to sort of see that history sort of play out in, into today. I'm just wondering if you're intending to do more exploration around the African stuff and, and if there's anything that, that you might be able to share with us tonight. Sure. Um, so Throw Down Your Heart is this project I did in, 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 in West and East Africa where I, where I went back and filmed interactions with great musicians uh, playing traditional instruments, um, some of the forebears of the banjo and so forth. Um, yeah, well, you know... It's funny, after you have a kid, like, what, it, it, I was thinking what I would like to do next, <laughs> if I was just going to continue on that track, was to do a collaboration with musicians from uh, Iraq and Afghanistan and Iran and some places like that, um, where the, with the banjo would fit in beautifully. But, you know, just my perspective has changed being a father that, that I don't necessarily want to go do that right now. Um, just simply because I want to be there for him and, and some of these things can be dangerous. And in fact, a lot of the places that I was at, uh, where, where I was in Africa, there has been a lot of violence since I was there and I got in and out before that happened and I felt very fortunate, you know, because um, it was a little while back ago, ago, it was a different time in life. Um, and so I think I'm looking for safer things to do. My, my, my uh, courage has, has flown the coop as I became a father, just that I... But I think those would be great things to do, you know. I think the, uh, building musical bridges like Abby's been doing with China is, is a wonderful thing. And, uh, and my experience doing that with African musicians was some of the best ever. And, and I was able to not only go over there and have the experience of showing my music to them there, but also bring musicians on tour to the United States and show, show off some of these African musics that you don't hear. Like you maybe you hear about the Afropop stuff, you know, which is uh, obviously can be great or not, but um, some of this ethnic um, 
music that is just so deep and powerful and ancient, just like Abby's talking about these ancient sounds that are in there too, you know, and you hear it and you're just like listening to Umu Sangare, not with a rock band. I mean, she, when I, we came over here, we played with a rock, I played with a rock band, but when you hear her playing the music and it's all acoustic in, there, in a circle and it's just so real and so deep, it's the same exact reason I played the banjo in the first time when I heard Earl Scruggs, because his banjo hit me that way, even on a, a silly song about Beverly Hillbillies. So um, I guess that's the best I can do for you right now. Yeah. Thank you. You guys are very lovely. I feel like we're, we're a bit lucky that we get you for a, an hour and a half. Can we get another Thanks song? Thanks for wanting us for an hour and a half, by the way. What, what do you want to finish up yeah. with? Yeah. Um, what do you want to do? Whatever you want to do, honey. <laughs> no, you, honey. No, sweetie. <laughs> something fast, something slow. Did we, do, did we ever do anything slow? Want to do heaven, or you want to do? Um, want to do? Am I born to die, or you want to do? Yeah, let's do a cheery number like "Am I born to die?" Yeah. We could do Sparrow or Homes yeah. Across the Blue Ridge Mountains. Or? Well, let's do that. You want to do that? Are you brave? Sure. Okay, we'll try something kind of new. <clears throat> this is a song that was. Um, uh, written by the Carolina Tar Heels, recorded in the 1920s, and uh, so it's not that new. <laughs> in China, they would say it's very new, um, but this is a uh, this is a very different version than you would hear of the Carolina Tar Heels string band number. But it's it's done commonly. It's called "My Homes Across the Blue Ridge Mountains." Mountains 
I think if you're lucky, these guys are playing uh, an entire show tomorrow night here. I think, is it nearly sold out? Is it sold out? It's getting close. You just got okay, tickets it's not today. sold out. It's getting out. close to being sold out. I think maybe another little round of applause. And thanks to Sal. Thank you, Sal. Thank you.